please open your Bibles to the book of John, the book of John, particularly chapter 17. And while you're turning there, allow me to ask you a question. Have you ever asked yourself, what would Jesus pray? What would Jesus pray? I know for myself growing up as, as one who proudly wore a WWJD bracelet for many years, I actually would sometimes look at it and, and think, what would Jesus do here? Would he do this? Would he abstain from that? How would he react in this situation? But have we ever, whether in our prayer lives or in the generalities of life, asked ourselves, what would Jesus pray? How might I offer a prayer that is modeled after him? So that's the title of our morning sermon as we look at this prayer in John chapter 17. Uh, what would Jesus pray? And today we're going to answer that question. Many of us are more familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Many of us have even memorized that. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. But we might not be as familiar with the other Lord's Prayer, the one that we're going to look at today, the high priestly prayer, as it's been called throughout much of church history. Because this prayer, as we're going to come to see, is layered with love and compassion and even urgency. Urgency, because as we remembered what Jesus uh, talked about at the end of chapter 16, urgency because he knows that he's about to leave. He will no longer physically be with his disciples. And so he cares for them. He has compassion on them. And he wants them to know that this day is coming when he will not be with them. And they do not need to lose faith. So there's an urgency in this prayer. Remember the end of, of chapter 16, Pastor Patrick hit on it. But Jesus tells them to expect sufferings. Expect trials, expect uh, persecutions and tribulations, but he tells them, he even commands them, but take heart, be of courage, for I have overcome the world. And it's that statement that will guide Jesus into this prayer that we find ourselves in chapter 17, and that's where we're going to be. So if you're taking notes, uh, whether in the bulletin or just on your own, I actually want to give you the parts of this prayer up front. Four parts uh, to this prayer that Jesus prays, I think will give us instruction and hope and encouragement in the Christian life. So the first, or the four parts that we see are this, a prayer of petition, a prayer of petition, followed by a prayer of protection, prayer of protection, thirdly, a prayer of purpose, a prayer of purpose, and last, a prayer of presence. Those will be back on the screen as we work our way through. Let's start off a prayer of petition. John chapter 17, follow along as I start out in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things. He looked up to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you gave him authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Petition, by its very definition, is a request for something. It's a request for something to be made known or for something to happen. And here in these first five verses, we have a petition by Jesus to the Father for the Father to glorify the Son, and in so doing, the Son will glorify the Father. It is a reciprocal glory. 
verse 1, Father, glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. To glorify here, or, or glory here, speaks of to clothe in splendor. To clothe in splendor. Jesus is petitioning the Father to reverse the self-emptying in his incarnation and to restore him to the splendor that he shared with the Father before the world began. Think of Philippians 2. Jesus takes on a human nature. He humbles himself, takes on a human nature, and he looked like you and me. His glory was veiled, but now he knows that his time has come. The cross is right around the corner, and he prays, Father, allow me, allow me to be glorified. Allow me to reveal my true glory. But the question comes, how will this take place? How will the Son of God be glorified? Jesus here is praying in some measure throughout John chapter 17 as if the cross has already taken place. But we see in verse 1 this characteristic language of John, the hour has come. As you read through John, Jesus would either not go certain places or not say or do certain things because his hour had not yet come. But here in John 17, the hour has come. The hour, the moment, which speaks of the coming crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The hour that will look for all intents and purposes as if Jesus was a hoax, a fake Messiah, another great teacher who came and taught and died like so many before him. But the beauty of the gospel lies in a paradox. Salvation comes through sacrifice. Death will bring about life. What will occur on that Roman cross to Jesus of Nazareth seems to be utter mockery, humiliation, and brutality, and it was. But when combined with the truth of the resurrection, we have the glory of the Son of God on full display. And when Jesus Christ is glorified, the Father is as well. So the question of how the Son will be glorified is answered through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. It will happen through the cross but we still need to understand why. Why the bloody cross? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, the answer is in part in this room. It's for you. And it's for me. The purpose clause there in the Greek is, is henna, and it means the so that that we read in English. The so that provides the purpose of his death. Verse 3, so that he might give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him, that we might be reconciled to God as his chosen people, and that God's plan, his eternal plan of calling and redeeming a people to himself will be accomplished through the work of his son. No other way. And what is eternal life? What is eternal life? How should we think of it as a Christian? Verse 3 tells us this is eternal life, that we know God the Father and Christ his Son. To know here does not simply mean of to have a, a general knowledge of or to have an awareness of. No, this oida, this word means to know intimately, to have an intimate relationship with. And it says that this is actually eternal life itself. Did you catch that in the text? Knowing God is not the way to eternal life. Knowing God is eternal life. When you know God through Christ, then you have eternal life. He is eternal life. Have you ever, uh, as you're reading through your Bible, have you ever thought of the despair 
and the guilt and the shame and probably the utter sense of loss that Adam and Eve felt when they were cast out of the garden? Have you ever thought on that? They had known God. They had enjoyed his presence like no other, his fellowship like no other. They had felt his tender love and care. They had communicated with him, truly enjoyed him. They had known God. And then they were cast out. They were cut off. They would hide from God because their sin and their shame were too much when confronted with his holiness. The door, so to speak, of Eden was shut behind them as they were cast out of the temple-like garden of God. They had known God, but their sin had cut them off. Now God, as we know, as we continue to read throughout the Old Testament, he continues to pursue his people. God is faithful to a wayward people. Each of us would say amen to that because we know it's true in our own lives. He is faithful throughout the Old Testament. But that fundamental capacity to know him, to know him truly, it had been broken. It had been severed. But praise God for Genesis 3.15 because there was a promise The promise that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And here in John chapter 17, that promise is both forecasted and about to be realized. The eternal plan of God to reverse what happened in the garden is about to come to fruition. So no longer are we cast out. No longer is the relationship broken. But in and through Jesus Christ, we can and do know God. We can and do have eternal life because we know God. I want to remind you about this eternal life. It's a life not so much focused on quantity, not so much focused on living forever, not so much focused on the duration, but a life focused on the quality. We know God. We know God through Jesus Christ. So we should rejoice in that. We should take heart in that. We should be encouraged by that this morning because we, of all people, know God through his son. So take encouragement from that. Secondly, we see a prayer of protection. A prayer of protection. John chapter 17, starting in verse 6. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. Here he's talking specifically about his disciples. They have come to know and believe that Jesus is truly from God. And he continues, verse 9, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Here in this section of the prayer, Jesus turns the focus off of himself and onto the disciples. He's been warning them that he's going to depart, that his time physically with them is, is almost up. He has told them that things are going to be difficult, that they will have trials and sorrows and sufferings and persecutions. We're reminded of that from the end of 16. He tells them, though, also of the coming advocate of the Holy Spirit who will guide them into all truth and both convict and clarify as Pastor Patrick taught on last week. He's told them of this. And the disciples have come to know that what he says is truth. They have come to know that Jesus is truly from God. And he acknowledges this. But here, Jesus is moved by compassion for them because he knows that they're going to be in a world without him. And so he prays for their protection. And there are two parts to this protection, two aspects of it that we need to look at. And the first is this. They are protected by the name of God. They are protected by the name of God. Verses 11 and 12 highlight that we as disciples of Jesus are protected by the name of God. So what does this mean? I'm telling you that we are protected by the name of God, so what does that mean? Well, in biblical thought, a person's name was their entire character. It was a designation of who they are. It was their very work and their action. Your name is your being in the Bible. How did God reveal himself in Exodus 3 to Moses? He said, I am who I am. Who should I say that's sending me? You can say, I am is sending you. He's saying, my very nature, my being is who I am. So when I say that we are protected by the name of God, what I mean is that we are protected by his very being, by his character, by his work, and by his action. Now on this side of the, of the incarnation, he has another name. His name is Jesus. Do you remember that startling and bold statement that he said in John chapter 8? He said, before Abraham was, I am. We here believe that Jesus is God. He is God made flesh. That if we are found in Christ, we are protected by the very name of God. We remain in him, as chapter 15 tells us. Think with me of a healthy relationship between a father and his child. Maybe this is your own relationship with your dad, or maybe if you didn't have the best relationship with your dad, maybe you saw it modeled well in the life of another. Think, of with, me, think, of, uh, think with me on that. Does that father, or even a mother, not have an innate desire to protect their child? An innate desire to shield them from wrongdoing? There are a few things in life that, that truly get me angry. My wife would tell you this is true, actually, so I'm not just up here saying it. There are a few things in life that truly get me angry, truly angry. But when I think of someone hurting my child, I'm not sure there's an extent to the limit that I'd be willing to go to protect them. I would do anything to protect them. I experienced this the other day at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Christian chicken, as some of you might call it, okay? Jed was playing in the play place. You know how it is. There's glass there. You can see I was taking a bite of my sandwich. I happened to look in there, and when I looked, I saw a little boy punch him. Now, before I realized what had happened, I had levitated into that play place, and I was ready to both defend and annihilate anybody for Jed. 
Doesn't matter if they're a fourth of my size or not, all right? I will own you, okay? Thankfully, my wife was right behind me. And she reminded me that this is sometimes what kids do. Sometimes even Jedediah has done this thing himself. At the moment, though, I did not want to hear any of it. All I wanted to do in that moment was protect Jed more than anything else. And for the moms in here, I know this is true of you. I have seen you at the park. <laughs> when your mama bear comes out, it's, it's a frightening thing. There is an innate desire in us as parents to protect our children. So if that is true for us, do we then not think that our Heavenly Father will protect us? Do we then not think that when Jesus prays for protection for us, that he will protect us? Now, I want to be clear here. Jesus says, he says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. He tells us to expect sorrow and suffering and trial and persecution. But what Jesus prays is that the Father would protect us from the evil one, from the schemes of Satan. Do we then not think that our sovereign God will do that? If we are found in Christ, he will do that very thing. What can Satan do to us that we would fear? Absolutely nothing. Proverbs 18, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are protected. 2 Timothy 2, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, the Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. The Lord protects. He protects those who belong to him. When we are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are no longer in the world, but we are found to be in Christ, then we are protected by the name of God, by his very character, his very being. So that's the first part of our protection. But secondly, we see that we are protected by the word of God. First, we're protected by the name of God. Next, we see we're protected by the word of God. Verses 15 and 17 Verse 15, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. It's exactly what we talked about. We have a kingdom mission to do in this world until the Lord returns. We can expect those things that he said at the end of chapter 16. But verse 17, they are not of the world. He's talking of his disciples. Just as I, just as I am not of the world, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So as I said, we live in this already not yet tension. This side of the cross, Jesus has ushered in the kingdom, but it is not yet fully realized. We await his return once more while everything will be perfected and completed. But in this meantime, he prays that his followers would be sanctified. He prays that his followers would be set apart would be holy, because that's what sanctification means. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be holy. That actual word grouping in the Bible is often used to describe God himself. He is truly other. He is truly set apart. He is truly holy. So Jesus prays that his followers would be set apart by the truth. They would be sanctified by the truth, that their otherness in this world, our otherness in this world, our holiness in this world would be because of the truth. So what is the truth? He tells us, your word is truth. It's his word. And the word in John is multifaceted. It primarily means three things. First, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So it's the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. But secondly, 
It's also about the work of Christ. It's the message of the good news concerning Jesus. We, as his followers, have been given a word to proclaim to a lost and dying world. We have something to tell them. We have a message to tell them, a word to give them. But thirdly, and this is the one I want to hit on for a second, it's God's revelation of himself embodied in the very pages of this book. To be sanctified then in John 17 by the truth and to be protected from the evil one in John 17 means to know Jesus, to know the good news about Jesus, and to know the very words that reveal Jesus to us. So let's talk about that last one. It is very hard for us to be sanctified in this life. It's very hard for this prayer to be true of Jesus, very hard for us to be holy, very hard for us to come to thank God's thoughts after him without learning to live in conformity with his word. Very hard for those things to happen. So I want you to hear me clearly. My goal is not to guilt you one bit this morning into reading your Bible more. Guilt is really easy to communicate. My goal is not that at all. My goal is to help you to see your need as a Christian as a follower of Christ, a disciple of Jesus, to, to read, to be filled up with, to abide in the very word of God because it is life-giving to you. Sanctify them by the truth. How can we grow in truth? How can we be set apart by truth unless we are a people of the word? And it's not just a clinical sanctification that I'm talking about. It's not just you read a chapter a day and then suddenly you are set apart. No, it's an understanding that when you read these words, when you pray on these words, when you meditate on these words, that they are life-giving in and of themselves. That when you do the word, when you are in the word, when you abide in the word, then you are blessed by all people. You are blessed because God blesses his word. And he blesses the doing of his word. When you abide in his word, then you are blessed. Does anyone know in here what question Jesus asked more than any other throughout the Gospels? More than any other. He was an excellent question asker, if I could say that. But what question did he ask more than any other? It was this. Have you not read? Have you never read? At the very least, this is instructive for us in how we ought to love and cherish the Word of God. Let's move on. Thirdly, a prayer of purpose, a prayer of petition, a prayer of protection, and a prayer of purpose. Verse 20, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus now prays for those who would come to faith through the disciples' message, who would come to faith through the apostolic message, who have believed in the apostolic gospel. That's us. So he's praying. This should get us on the, in, the edge of our seats. He's praying specifically for us. What does Jesus have to pray for us? Those who have believed in the disciples' message, believed in this good news concerning Jesus, what does he pray for us? He has a prayer of purpose. His purpose is unity. Unity in those who believe the gospel message. Unity that is shaped and marked by holiness and love. 
So I have to ask the question, did God the Father not answer this prayer? Did God the Father not answer this prayer? Because some would argue today that the church is not unified. Many in this very room have had conversations with those in this community in Idaho Falls who say, but you all are so divided. There are so many churches, non-denominational, Baptist, Lutheran, Charismatic, Pentecostal, Reformed, Methodist, you name it, and there's probably a denomination. And then they might even quote this very passage to you from John 17 and said, but Jesus prayed that his followers would be one. He prayed that they would be united. So was this prayer not answered? Well, later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would, would ask, Father, if possible, please take this cup from me. And the answer was no. He had to take that cup. But here in John 17, I don't, I don't think the request for unity is denied. But I do think we need to look closely. Verse 21, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. The unity that Jesus is speaking of here is not primarily horizontal, it's primarily vertical. The horizontal comes only after the vertical unity has been accomplished. It is the unity he shares with the Father. Father, may they all be one. May they all be unified uh, with you, Father, as you are in me and I am in you. In other words, it's not horizontal unity. It's not primarily about our relationship with one another, although that comes, and I'm going to hit on it in just a second. There's nothing in the text, though, about institutional structures or race or gender or background or class. It's not based on a church identity, a denomination, a network, or an association. All important concerns, but not the main concern here in John 17. The main concern here is for a unity that is vertical first. It is our position in Christ. Are we to be found in Christ? Because if we are, then we are unified. The unity Jesus wishes for his followers is the unity that he shares with the Father. It's a unity that everyone who believes and repents and confesses that Jesus is Lord of all has and does partake of. When you are baptized into the faith, into the Holy Spirit, by faith, in communion with God, then you have this unity that he's talking about. So I want to say this clearly. True unity comes through conversion. True unity comes through conversion. And true believers value and pursue that unity amongst one another today. True believers in here value and pursue that unity amongst one another today, although not yet perfectly. As I said earlier, we live in the already not yet. Not everything has been perfected. We don't realize a perfect horizontal unity, although we still pursue it. But hear me here. If you have no love for God's church, if you have no love for God's people, if you have no love for, God's, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, it may be an indication that you have no love for God and you have not experienced the vertical unity I'm talking about. True horizontal unity will one day be seen and realized for every believer when those from every tribe and tongue and nation are bowing down before the Lamb of God. That is when true horizontal unity will be fully realized and fully seen. But until then, we work. We work to accomplish unity amongst one another on the grounds of the unity we have vertically, first and foremost. 
But I want to say one more thing about unity, especially in our context. Unity in no way implies uniformity. The fact that we have diversity within true gospel believing and teaching churches and denominations is a beautiful thing. The fact that we have diversity within true gospel believing and teaching to churches and denominations is a beautiful thing because if God wanted all of our churches to look the same, he would not have gifted us with a variety of spiritual gifts. No, the, the true church of Jesus Christ is composed of all true believers in Christ. No matter church affiliation, no matter denominational, denominational lines. Our unity in Christ, our unity that exists in Christ is first and foremost. That is the vertical unity. And then through that unity, we share a unity with one another because of who we are in. So I wanted to make that clear. Our unity flows from the Trinitarian God that we serve. Our God is one God in three persons. There is a perfect uh, relationship of love in there. There's perfect unity in there. And our unity flows from that. So this is true of us here at Christ Community. We come from different backgrounds, different social classes, uh, different denominations, different testimonies, all the above. But what unites us here as a church, first and foremost, is that each Christian here is in Christ. In Christ, first and foremost. And then from there, we pursue unity. From there, our horizontal unity flows So Christ's prayer of purpose here is that we would be united to the Father through him. And for every believer for the past 2,000 years, that prayer has been faithfully answered. They were in Christ first and foremost. Lastly, we see a prayer of presence. A prayer of presence. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. 25, righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Jesus prays that he wants those who are given to him those who are followers of his, the the elect, God's chosen people, to be with him so that we might behold his glory. This is the prayer of presence, our, our last part of the prayer, the prayer of presence, that we might be in his presence, that we might see our Lord Jesus face to face. Do you ever dream on that? Do you ever meditate on that as a Christian? What it will be like once we pass on from this life? When this life is no longer, no more, and we are in the presence of Jesus. It's not difficult for us to desire to be with Jesus. Most people, when they learn about him, would love to desire to be with Jesus in some part. It's stunning to think that he would desire to be with us. And this is the prayer of presence that he prays. He prays that we would be where he is, in his presence, beholding his glory. That we would persevere to the end, that we would run the race well with our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That we would run this race well. That we would behold his glory. The glory that he's anticipating on the cross the glory that he will suffer through for you and for me, and the glory that will be shown in his final conquering of sin and death once and forevermore. His radiant glory that shines so bright, Revelation 21 tells us in verses 22 and 23, that there will be no need for a sun and no need for a moon in those days. 
Verse 22, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. A few verses later, 22 verse 5, night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Do you think on that? Do you meditate on that? Few things can encourage you in this Christian life than than thinking on being in the presence of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have to be mindful of an eternal mindset, mindful of the presence that one day we are looking forward to being in forever and ever. So that, brothers and sisters, is the glory that we will one day marvel at, one day behold, one day cherish, one day rejoice in. This is what we long and we look forward to, so fix your eyes upon Jesus and look to him in all things because one day you will be in his presence. I'm going to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis because I don't know how else to close. C.S. Lewis, in the last of his Narnia books, The Last Battle, writes so vividly and so perfectly how we should be thinking about heaven. And he talks about entering into Aslan's country. And if you haven't read these, these books, Aslan is a representation of God. So Aslan's country is a representation of heaven. And he records what one of the characters says. He says, I have come at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Come further up. Come further in. Would we heed that call, Christ community, to come further up, to come further in, to press on in Christ, to labor faithfully for him, and to look forward to one day being in his presence forevermore? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, this prayer of Jesus that was uh, prayed for his disciples and, and prayed for us as well. Thank you for the truths found in it. Thank you for the encouragement, possibly even the conviction in some regards and parts of our lives. But I pray, Father, now that as your spirit is at work, that you would both uh, convict and clarify all that I have said. Pray that if someone doesn't know you, that they would place their trust, their faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe that they would look forward to one day being in his presence forevermore. So be with us now. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. And may our eyes be looking at the throne above all else. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.